The Chris and Amy Show, sponsored by Summer at SLU. Find your kids' best summer yet at St. Louis University. Okay, three, two, one, hit it. It's the Chris and Amy Show. You know who it is. Also, if you didn't know, this is called the show. Now, Amy Marks scores Chris Ranji on KMOX. Good morning to all of you out there. Thank you for joining us on a Thursday morning here in Studio B. Chris Ranji, well, he uh, he's still alive. He is just recovering. And so in his stead is none other than the Honorable Brad Young of Hairstyle Fisher & Young. Hey, Brad, thanks for sitting in this morning. Oh, my pleasure. But I, I still question, is Ranji sick or... If he has his alternate family in Chicago, is it like a parent-teacher conference so it's that he funny, has to go to? It's funny that you say that. We had a meeting yesterday with our boss, Steve, and Ranji zoomed in, and our boss was pretty sure that he saw the Chicago skyline in in the background, some exactly. buildings, maybe Navy Pier. It was yeah. very suspicious. Yeah, I'm very sick. <laughs> right. Now I have to go to the yeah. PTA meeting. Allegedly convalescing. We'll see when he's back. But Brad, we really appreciate it. If you're listening to us on 1120 AM, the OG, you can also check out 98.7 FM. It's really clear, especially along that Highway 40 corridor or the Odyssey app. You can take us wherever you go. You can stick us in your pocket or your purse, listen to us while you're shopping or on a boat or cleaning the house, whatever it may be. The Odyssey app is free. You can download it. If you miss anything on the show, you can check us out on the Chris and Amy Show podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe. Time now for the top of the order. The top three stories everybody will be talking about. Well, as we speak, the nine members of the Supreme Court, well, they're taking their seat to really wade into uncharted legal waters to see if Donald Trump is eligible for a second term as president. Yeah. Also, we're going to be talking about this hour and throughout the show. Remember that drone issue the last couple of weeks? Uh, there's been this issue in South St. Louis about whether drones could fly, whether they would fly, whether it's criminal violation, whether it's a civil violation, our privacy rights being violated. All of that was supposed to culminate on Monday with the drone flying, but we haven't seen anything yet. So we'll be diving into that today as well. And Bob Costas, he'll be here today. Well, I, I promise. I, I heard he was deceased. <laughs> no, there was a slight miscommunication. And as we were waiting for Bob to call us, Ranj and I were talking about him at such length and in such adulatory terms that several people thought that perhaps Bob Costas had died, but he had not. We were just waiting for him to call. He has not yet assumed room temperature. He's still with us. <laughs> He's still okay, good. very much with us and will be literally with us um, today at 1230. The type of public official who is barred under the 14th Amendment. Will the court be willing to say that in fact Donald Trump engaged in insurrection even though he's never been charged or convicted of that offense. Now, Donald Trump, I mean, this is the Colorado case, Brad, where the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado decided, uh, made the decision that Trump was ineligible to be on the ballot as the Republican candidate for the presidency. And what's interesting is it wasn't an unequivocal decision. I think even the Supreme Court judges in Colorado who 
voted saying that Donald Trump wasn't eligible, they themselves seemed, well, we're yeah. making our best decision that we can, but we're not quite sure. We'll see how this holds up today. If it holds up, uh, that's what's being discussed right now. Exactly. And really, this is for the last more than 100 years, actually the last 140 years, this provision within the 14th Amendment, Section 3, was really just viewed as like an appendix. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's there, but we really don't know what its purpose is. And so that's why these courts, Amy, are having so much trouble with this, because the, our legal system is designed to go by what has been decided before. But if you really haven't had anything decided before, the question then becomes, how do we decide it today? And that's why the courts are really struggling with that. And I know that a conviction is not necessarily a requirement here because the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment was made post-Civil War, and you didn't have to prove that all of these guys fought in the Confederacy. It was just understood that if they were, you know, if there was an officer in the Confederacy, correct me if I'm wrong here, that they wouldn't be eligible. Correct. I mean, there, there's, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to be looking at whether or not he was, whether President, former President Trump was or was not convicted because I don't think that's one of the standards. Mm -hmm. But it was really the, the takeaway here. There are three things. If, if folks want to really boil all this down to, to a manageable nugget, there are three things that the court, I think, is going to be focusing on. First is the president and what's called an officer, mm -hmm. uh, an officer of the United States for purposes of Section 3, because there's a lot of questions about whether he is, the, when I say he, meaning the president, is or is not an officer. If the president isn't considered an officer, then the entire Section 3 doesn't even apply. So that's going to be the first question. The second question is, is whether Section 3 is what's called self-executing. What does that mean? What that means is, is can Section 3 in of itself be enforced by a court, or does it require Congress to establish guidelines for the application of Section 3. And now, you know, the only precedent that we have on this, Amy, goes back to 1869 when the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1869, Salmon B. Chase, which, by the way, I don't think I would want my first name to be Salmon. I'm <laughs> right. just saying. All right. Is it spelled like it's the spelled fish? It's spelled like the hmm. fish. Yeah. Uh, so I... I don't know if his parents, you know, were seafood nuts. Don't yeah. know. Don't know. But anyway, in 1869, Salmon uh, P. Chase ruled that that this provision cannot be enforced unless Congress establishes guidelines mm -hmm. for the enforcement of that provision. And then the, the third question is what the, the question that we just talked about a moment ago, Amy, which is, was January 6th actually an insurrection for purposes of Section 3, or was it simply a riot? So those are the three main questions that will be before the court today during oral argument. I want to go back to number two, what you said, is it self-executing? Is the 14th Amendment, this provision, self-executing? And you mentioned the enforcement issue that Salmon P. Chase brought up, just to clarify for laymen, what is the difference between self-executing and self-enforcing? Well, self-enforcing has provisions within the language that allow courts to enforce it, which okay. is different than how it is to be applied. 
And so those are two different ideas. For I'm trying to think of an example to, mm-hmm. to take it out of legal ease, but that kind of an example escapes me at the moment. But if it were self-enforcing, then the provisions would be clear in terms of how they're applied, but the self-enforcing would dictate how it is to be enforced. But in a situation where it's self-executing, uh, it would require additional legislation from Congress or additional guidance from Congress as to how it's to be applied in any given situation. And let me put it in these terms so it's a little easier to understand. What we have right now is we have two states. We have Colorado and we have Maine that have both said President Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot, but they've done it for different reasons. One was a a court decision in Colorado, four to three, by the Colorado Supreme Court. One in Maine was a unilateral decision by the Maine Secretary of State. And so what you have is, is that you have a hodgepodge of 50 states that could, in theory, all apply Section 3 differently of the 14th Amendment. They could all apply it differently. So the argument that uh, the strongest argument, I think, that President Trump's team has is that in the absence of a Supreme Court laying down guidance mm-hmm. or Congress laying down guidance as to how it's to be applied, you're going to have 50 states applying it different ways and reaching 50 different results. Is there a possibility that the Supreme Court finds an ancillary issue in this case, not one of the top three being, you know, is he an officer? Is it self-executing? Was it an insurrection or a riot? But they find almost like a technicality, such as in Colorado, because the court accelerated the process and they didn't themselves have separate evidence but used the video from January 6th and such as evidence for the insurrection, would they say Trump didn't receive due process, so we're not going to decide on whether or not he's eligible? Or well, is that, that have that, they that, already moved past that point? No, they could certainly do that. And the Supreme Court is famous for deciding issues on narrow uh, procedural grounds to avoid reaching a greater decision. Mm-hmm. All right. The reason why I don't think the court's going to do that, because if they handled, if the court handles the Colorado case on a very narrow procedural ground and eliminate this as a decision, then you're going to have 49 other states that are still going to reach different decisions and you would have potentially chaos in the November election as to who's on the ballot and who is not on the ballot. So I think the court has to understand that they're going to have to make a decision one way or the other in a way that will give guidance to all 50 states. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the issue doesn't go away. For example, even if they decide this on a narrow ground with the Colorado case, Maine still has them off the ballot. So it doesn't – and Illinois is saying – Illinois, the the election board just decided last week that they were going to leave Trump on the ballot for the sole reason that they're looking for guidance from the Supreme Court. I can promise you in Illinois they would take them off the ballot – if the court decides we're not going to decide this issue. Okay. Just to clarify, if the Supreme Court says that Trump is ineligible based on this Colorado case, is that then a domino effect for all 50 states that he's not eligible at all? Or would all 50 states have to bring their case to the Supreme Court? No, he could. The Supreme Court could rule that that Trump is ineligible because he has engaged in insurrection because uh, the president is an officer of the United States for purposes of Section 3 of, of, of uh, uh, the 14th Amendment mm-hmm. and that Section 3 is self-executing. And they could decide that. And if so, President Trump doesn't appear on the ballot. Got it. Uh, but I, I don't believe the court is going to rule that way, really for the greater issue of 
democracy. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you, you, you could love President Trump. You could hate President Trump. But the idea of artificially eliminating someone from the ballot is really an anti-democratic concept where the voters do not get to decide. I mean, it's kind of like in, in other countries where someone gets 110 percent of the vote, mm-hmm. all right, when they're running for office. Uh, we know that that's just not realistic. And, and there's an artificial way to say you can't decide whom you want to vote for. Mm-hmm. And so from that policy decision, I don't really think the Supremes want to adopt an idea that would eliminate candidates from consideration. Isn't, though, the 14th Amendment by design somewhat anti-democratic? Because oh, it's saying you can't you can't do this. It absolutely is. Absolutely it is. Mm-hmm. But there's one thing that I'm not hearing any legal analysts talk about, and that is in 1872. Well, first of all, I need to very quickly state mm-hmm. this. Under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it has a provision that says Congress, by a two-thirds of a majority, can vote to remove the insurrection clause. And Congress has, in fact, done that in 1872. So the question, one of the questions is, is has Congress already eliminated mm-hmm. the insurrection clause when they voted to do so in 1872? Or was that just eliminating the the uh, insurrection clause as it applied to everyone who was alive in 1872? I guess we'd have to ask Joe Biden because he's the only guy <laughs> I know that was alive in 1872. <laughs> Maybe we should ask him about this. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's um, not a bad, a bad uh, option. Uh, he's Brad Young, legal analyst, and I'm Amy Mark Scores. Brad's in for Chris Ranji, who is convalescing. The drones, the drones were supposed to hit St. Louis um, this week. I don't think they're there. We'll break it down next on The Chris and Amy Show on KMOX. Amy Mark Scores, Brad Young alongside you. Well, Brad, the the drones, the, the weirdest story that continued to get weirder about SMS novel films wanting to fly drones over the city of St. Louis to provide security, except the city of St. Louis didn't want it. This company just showed up as if they could and were wanted. Sean Malone did an in-depth story on SMS novel and the CEO, Jomo Johnson, who was very culty. They have a video where they even say, we are a cult. We are a cult at SMS novel. The novel comes from actual novels because the company allowed you to publish books using chat gpt the sms novel films come because they wanted to make movies and in fact for two hundred dollars your dog can audition to be in a movie about jesus wow i know so this is who we're dealing with but the drones brad they're not here we haven't seen any evidence of them and and what i find interesting about this is that this this is all the stuff I'm interested in in mm-hmm. one topic, okay? <laughs> okay? It really is because you have privacy issues, you have criminal issues, mm-hmm. you have civil issues, you have technology issues, you have expectations of privacy issues, you have whether someone can and what are your legal rights as a as a citizen to fly a drone, what are your rights as a citizen to be free from excessive surveillance? All of this is wrapped up into one issue. Because with this drone issue, you have both civil and criminal. For example, uh, in the city of St. Louis, it is uh, a violation of law to fly a drone in a park unless you obtain a permit from the city. So you can't fly drones in parks. And so some would say, and I would be one of them, that's a good thing. If I'm in the park and I'm enjoying my day, the last thing I want is uh, something sounding like a, uh, a herd of hornets 
coming at me and filming and shooting what I'm doing. I don't want that. It's a park. I'm there to relax. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a law against that. And on the flip side, if you're a homeowner in South City and there's drones flying over your property, you have a property right, at least according to the Supreme Court from 1946, you have at least a property right that goes up 300 feet above the tallest structure on your property. So if you have a if you have a 50-foot tree, then you your property rights go up to 350 feet at minimum under federal law. So if they're flying a drone over your house, they're they're in essence they're trespassing. And so you have that as a concept. You have if they're shooting video into your house, you have an expectation of privacy. Uh, so there's civil liability. There's potential criminal liability if you're being uh, a voyeur or a stalker or a peeper, a peeping Tom. Mm-hmm. All of those issues could be criminal issues. So that's why, for me, this issue is so fascinating because it touches literally on every segment of our society. So would you say that if the drones were to arrive and to start filming, that the residents of that area of St. Louis would have such a strong case against allowing those drones to fly? Well, here's the, I think the, yes, the answer to your question is yes. And here's what I think is the strongest argument. Let's assume just for discussion purposes that the drone is flying over the public streets. Mm -hmm. All right. At that point, uh, you don't have, as an individual citizen, you don't have a a right to privacy when you're on the open and public streets. Uh, That's court's have ruled that going back 100 years. You have no expectation of privacy when you're on the open streets. However, this guy's charging money for a live stream, but you have a right, it's called a right to publicity, the right to control the commercial use of your image. If he's selling access to drone video and you're on it, you've got a cause of action against him. Hmm. We will have to revisit this, Brad, because I find that really interesting and it just seems so off. Well, Joining us next is attorney Scott Rosenblum. We've got questions for him about the Jennifer Crumley case, as well as Donald Trump in front of the Supreme Court. This is the Chris and Amy show on KMOX. Amy Mark scores Brad Young alongside you. Well, earlier this week, a jury found Jennifer Crumley guilty of manslaughter. This was after her son killed four students at a Michigan high school in 2021. And to give us his thoughts on this potentially precedent-setting case is Scott Rosenblum, the president and founding member of Rosenblum, Schwartz, Fry, and Johnson. Scott, thank you for your time this morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. Good morning, Scott. Hey, Brad Young here. And full disclosure, uh, I uh, I do have to tell you, I regularly practice in front of your son, Cole, administrative law judge. Uh, so, uh, you know, put in a good word for me. Uh, but here's, oh, absolutely. I will. <laughs> here, here's the question. I, I want to start off generally and then move to the specific, because from at least from my perspective, isn't this the first time, uh, at least been reported the first time, that parents have been held criminally responsible for a son who shoot who shot and killed others. Isn't this the first time that's happened? Yeah, I, I mean, in this type of novel approach, I mean, obviously, if they're somehow complicit in the crime or acting with another, I've seen that before. But this is sort of a novel approach that they had some duty, which they violated, and that they were grossly negligent in violating that duty. Um, uh, some fairly unique facts, I guess, to give rise to that. But certainly, it, it I mean, it could open up some floodgates for some interesting prosecutions. Well, and here's where I want to move to the specific, Scott, because 
at least from my perspective, the core of the state's case against Jennifer Crumbly was the fact that that her son Ethan had shown himself to be emotionally disturbed, and instead of intervening, she kind of left him to his own, and that she had a duty to act. But in this case, Ethan was charged as an adult. He was convicted as an adult. So isn't it somewhat contradictory that the state of Michigan charged Ethan as an adult, convicted him as an adult, and then convicted his mom of not taking care of her son as a child when he was, in fact, in fact convicted as an adult? I would agree. But, I mean, he was in, her, in his care, so there is this Trenti loco type approach. Um, and I think as far as disregarding his mental, his mental situation, apparently there were some diaries where he was placing in the diary that he kept reaching out to his parents for help, and they essentially disregarded it. And I think that combined with um, the fact that in, in spite of that, the father had recently purchased the weapon that was used, and the mother, like the day before, the day our, our very close proximity, took him to the shooting range. So, I mean, there were some other, I would think, uh, sort of explosive facts. However, I think it's still a reach for that type of prosecution. Mm-hmm. And, and and one more question. You raised, Scott, this issue of, of Ethan's emotional state. And part of the evidence that was submitted at the trial came from the superintendent of the school, Tim Throne, who said, and I'm quoting, at no time did counselors believe that Ethan might harm others based on his behavior, which seemed calm and he appeared calm. So if if his demeanor was calm and counselors weren't Uh, necessarily felt that there was a threatening situation with Ethan. How could the parents, at least in this instance so far, the mother, be held criminally responsible for not noticing his behavior if the school counselors didn't even notice that behavior? Certainly, I agree with you, and I think it's a stretch. And under that theory, uh, the school counselors or superintendent could be equally responsible. Hmm. Yeah, and then when I was looking at previous shooters, like the Highland Park shooter. The dad was accused of wrongdoing because he signed his son's application for the Illinois Firearms Owner's Identification Card, and he pleaded guilty to misdemeanor reckless conduct charges. There was also in Virginia, the six-year-old boy who shot his teacher, and the mother pleaded guilty to a state child neglect charge. And those types of charges they make more sense because of the actions or inactions of the parent. This one, of course, being involuntary manslaughter is escalated. But I almost feel like maybe it's not as precedent setting as it could be primarily because the parent's actions were so either egregiously neglectful or enabling of their son. Am I being naive on that one, on the precedent that this could or couldn't set? No, not necessarily. I mean, there are prosecutions fairly regularly for child endangerment and things of that nature. For instance, if a parent leaves a firearm around and a two-year-old or a child or an adolescent takes the gun and shoots himself or shoots somebody else, or if they're leaving narcotics around, things of that nature, you get into child endangerment charges. So it's a similar theory. It's just unusual, as you said, that the the kid was prosecuted as an adult and, and... uh, the parents were held uh, criminally liable. Um, but again, you have to look at, I guess it's got to be a fact-specific type thing. You can't just open up the floodgates and every time your kid, because you're the father or the mother um, of that child or young adult, commits a crime that you're going to be responsible for not somehow interact, uh, interceding 
in preventing it. That seems to me like a very high burden to impose on parents. It does indeed. We're talking to criminal defense attorney Scott Rosenblum. And Scott, uh, the the father uh, in this instance, Jeff Crumbly, his case proceeds to trial on March 15. And one of the main defenses to a charge of involuntary manslaughter is the defense of I'm not the person who's responsible. Someone else is responsible. So as you're gazing with your experience and looking at the criminal defense trial of Jeff Crumbly that's going to start in March, can he and his defense team now take the position that since the mother has already been found criminally responsible for the acts of the son, does that provide the father, Jeff, with an added defense to his four charges of involuntary manslaughter? Yeah, clearly it adds. Uh, it would add a defense. Uh, the law would prevent the conviction of the mother coming into evidence unless she would testify um, on on the father's behalf, and it could be introduced for impeachment of her. But um, she, he can certainly point the finger at her. Now, whether the jury would know independently that she was convicted or not, that would have to be something that would be dealt with in jury selection. I keep going back to what we discussed earlier with the son being charged and convicted as an adult and then the mom also being charged. Have you seen that before in any other type of case? Is this in itself a something that's precedent setting? Where uh, the the parent was charged criminally because of an adult uh, for the actions of an adult yes. child. Um. Not under that scenario, I have not seen it before. I'm not familiar with any cases um, anywhere other than this case that that proceeded on that type of theory and prosecution. Again, I mean, if if a a parent and a child were acting in concert, are they somehow connected or acting with another? Yeah, I've seen that type of pr- prosecution fairly on a on a regular basis. This is unusual. So as you look at this now that that Jennifer Crumbly has been convicted of four counts of involuntary manslaughter, obviously this now goes up on appeal. Are there any specific issues that jump out at you, Scott Rosenblum, that will be maybe one of the primary uh, arguments on appeal to challenge these convictions? Well, sure. I mean, whether or not they satisfy the elements of the case and the one element, and obviously the element of gross of this uh, duty to intercede and that they were grossly negligent, um, that could just fail as a matter of law. Now, obviously, it survived a judgment of acquittal um, at the close of the government or the prosecution's case, but that's that's subject for review by a higher court. And if the if the case fails because it did not make a submissible case under the law, then it could be reversed. I would anticipate that they would bring up that issue on appeal. Um, you know, I think the other thing that is sort of like the underlying current is the the charge, the the, the ancillary charge, and what happened. I mean, it was a school shooting where where young young kids were killed. Um, you know, that sort of inflames the jury, and in in my view, on a case like that, it would uh, human nature would some sometimes lower the burden of proof because the act of the of the adult kid or the the certified adult was so heinous um, and so impassioned and so inflamed that they sometimes can overlook the duty to actually hold the state to the burden of proof. 
Scott, you mentioned that cases like this, school shootings, are always emotional with the public and human nature. We've had several texts from people asking about the culpability of gun manufacturers in cases like this. Uh, it's, I know it's a big question, but what are your thoughts on some of those arguments that place blame on the gun manufacturers themselves? I mean, you're going to delve into this whole political morass and the Second Amendment and the gun lobby. So, you know, there's been civil suits against gun manufacturers. I am not aware of any criminal liability um, being levied against gun manufacturers because obviously their defense would be uh, we're, we're um, manufacturing a perfectly lawful um, piece of equipment and the way people use it. That's not our problem. Yeah, and there's also, of course, federal law that provides a shield to gun manufacturers. Uh, I'd have to go, I don't know all the details of that uh, and whether that would apply both to criminal prosecutions and civil prosecutions, but certainly that that shield would be a major barrier for anyone to overcome if they wanted to go against gun manufacturers. Yeah, I don't ever see that. I don't ever see that happening. I don't ever see criminal charges being uh, brought against a gun manufacturer. No, I, I don't either. But as you move on, and you mentioned a few moments ago, of course, we're we're talking to criminal defense attorney Scott Rosenblum. As you mentioned a few moments ago, this is a very, very fact-specific case. But when you see the way this is being reported in the media, it seems like it could be used as a template for future or additional opportunities to try to bring criminal convictions against individuals uh, when there is a mass shooting involved. Do you see that happening here? In other words, could this be a template for future prosecutions? Certainly, I think every, no, hopefully, you know, God willing, we're not going to be dealing with a lot of, a lot more mass shootings, but obviously I think we will. But I think uh, it will certainly invite a, some scrutiny to see how this person came about, the weapon, what this person's background was, and what, if there were individuals in this person's back background that turned a blind eye as they were going down this rabbit hole, which led them to the heinous act of, of a mass shooting. I think it's going to be scrutinized. Um, you know, there's been civil liability um, for, for like negligent entrustment for years. I mean, for instance, if, if you give your 16 year old who's, uh, a, who, who either is not licensed or who's been drinking or somehow impaired and you say, here's the keys to my car, go out and, and, you know, get me a, some milk, there's exposure there. Same as in a bar, if a person's rip-roaring drunk and you let them drink. So it, there's been civil type of cases um, for, like, negligent entrustment. I think it's just trying to extrapolate on that to incorporate criminal liability. He is Scott Rosenblum, president and founding member of Rosenblum, Schwartz, Fry, and Johnson. Scott, we know your time is valuable, and we appreciate it. Pleasure. And I'll put a good word in for you to to uh, his honor, Mr. Rosenblum. Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. Don't forget, Brad Young, spell it right. I, I'll spell it right. Well, it's not too, if I can't spell your name right, I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's right. Scott, right. thank you so much. Talk we really appreciate it. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Good stuff. I actually, I, I was really struck by what you said about the school shooter being charged as an adult. That was something... That seems should have been staring all right. of us in the face. And I've not heard that anywhere. Mm-mm. I mean, that uh, that's something I talked about a lot last night during At Your Service, 
And that's analysis I've not seen on any major news coverage is that inherent contradictory of saying that that the mom is responsible for the acts of her minor child. And yet the child was charged as an adult. The child was convicted as an adult and the child is going to prison as an adult. So it seems somewhat contradictory to say uh, he's an adult, he's an adult, he's an adult, and yet you, Mom, you should have been taking care of your son because he wasn't capable of making decisions as an adult. That seems to be very, very contradictory. Interesting. He's Brad Young. I'm Amy Mark. Scores. Did you see this is next. Did you see that thing? I can't believe it. Something is obviously wrong. This is a joke, right? Oh, my God. Are you freaking kidding me? No way. you got to be kidding me. Don't feel bad. There's no way you could have known that. Now, did you see this with Chris and Amy on the show? Brad, I don't know if you heard about this skyscraper in Los Angeles. So it was, it's the Oceanwide Plaza Development in downtown L.A. It's a $1 billion project that was abandoned in 2019. It was abandoned in 2019. I think they got 50-something, 57 stories before they just Hmm. abandoned the project. So now, kind of an eyesore of this partially built skyscraper. It has become a haven for graffiti artists, or you can call them pranksters or criminals. Right now, it's being debated. They have covered at least 27 floors of this skyscraper with graffiti. It's going viral on Instagram. People are flying from around the world, like graffiti artists are flying from around the world to break into this building. It's not like they're encouraging it. These people have to break into the building and spray the graffiti, do their art, and then leave. But it's become quite the topic of conversation Uh, According to the Washington Post, it's fodder for conversations about urban blight and foreign investment. And it's ignited a debate as well over whether graffiti is art Mm -hmm. or vandalism. Well, I've got the perfect solution. This solves all the problems with this property. okay? (laughs) Okay. And that is you bring in Banksy. You let Mm -hmm. Banksy do some artwork on it. You then sell his artwork for 50 to 100 million dollars. And then you finish the building. You could. You could. Do- I mean, why would you not want Banksy on your building? Exactly. And then you could be in the Banksy building and Man. you get rid of everything else. But that money alone would, would, would finish and complete the building. It's no longer an eyesore. It's now called the Banksy building. And it funds, it self-funds the construction and the finishing of the building. It's no longer an eyesore. It's a win-win, win-win-win. I think that's a great idea. If Banksy is listening, and you never know, you never know he with, may the be app, with the app, uh, the Odyssey app. He's in London. <laughs> he you is. know, right now in London, it's uh, it's about six o'clock at night. Uh huh. He could be listening. Yeah, he could be. Um, another. Well, speaking of another structure, Richard Plow, Plowed Plow. He might. Uh, he's on another level. He's from France, and he spent eight years creating a twenty-three point six foot model. Out of the Eiffel Tower. Sounds okay, okay, impressive. But he did it out of over 700,000 matchsticks because he wanted to set the world record for the tallest matchstick sculpture. Mm. My my only advice there, keep it away from Notre Dame. 
Remember Wait. Notre, Notre Dame caught fire, remember? Oh, gosh. Oh, you, you, you mean the cathedral. Want, you don't want an Eiffel, <laughs> Eiffel Tower structure or matchstick, matchsticks by the Notre Dame. I was picturing the fighting Irish. I said, what no, did they Notre do? Notre Dame, I guess Notre I should Notre Dame, said. the cathedral. He's Brad Young. I'm Amy Mark Scores. When we, when we return, we are going to talk about that border bill. What exactly was in it? Brad Young will break it all down. This is the Chris and Amy Show on KMOX.